lovely as it is talking to all of your neighbors, I think we ought to begin. And I should say, unfortunately, unfortunately, thank you. One of our panelists, Tatiana Karyanis, could not come. She had a dental emergency and she cannot speak. And as I told another panelist. Sorry, I think that was. Oh. oh. And the DRC ambassadors, both to the US and to the mission, have not. Excuse me, oh, I wish I could get her. I hope they're taping this. Yeah, ask her, double check, because the American Bar Association's interested in audio. At any rate, the DRC ambassadors, after many harassments, refused to come. But we have two wonderful panelists here who are experts, and I should just say, as you all know, this really is a historic election for the parliament, the president, and the provinces. And it's the first time these elections have been combined, right? Okay, all right, <laughs> Sasha will go into it more. And uh, as you know, Kabila has been in power since 2001, since his father was assassinated. And he was supposed to step down in 2016, and he didn't, and the elections were postponed, as our panelists will go into, thanks to an agreement brokered by the Catholic Church, and uh, our panelists will talk about the problems with the elections, the electronic voting machines, and the way forward, which hopefully there will be. And interestingly, sadly, you know, we did a program here in 1999, so almost 20 years ago, on peacemaking in the Congo. That was after the Second Congolese War when five million people were killed. And all of the countries in the region, of course, want a credible election, as does the US, which has declared the situation in the DRC is a threat to US foreign policy and regional stability. So at times, they do do something good. I should not. Uh. So let's begin with Sasha, who's the deputy director look at my notes, who's the deputy director of the Enough Project, working on issues mainly in Africa, and also very expertise, great expertise on the conflict minerals trade. And amazingly, he's with a forum that has set up a proper conduit for conflict-free gold in the DRC to the United States. And uh, he lived and worked in Uganda, both working with the LRI and on child soldiers. And he is the author of a book whose title I forget, uh, Crafting Peace Strategies to Deal with Warlords in Collapsing States. Whew. And with that thought, <laughs> you have the floor. 
Great. Uh, well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, and uh, uh, the New York City Bar Association for uh, for having me up. I'm based in Washington, so you know, came up to uh, to, to to do this. Um, I will uh, uh, refrain from my normal lawyer jokes that I um, use to open events. So, because of the the setting, I'm just kidding. So, um, <coughs> no, I'd love to hear. <laughs> so. Um, uh, look, uh, the, just to give you a quick summary, the Enough Project, where I work as a human rights organization, uh, we've been around for 11 years, uh, and we are uh, uh, essentially focused on five countries in East and Central Africa, DRC, South Sudan, Sudan, Central African Republic, and Somalia, um, and as well as you know the neighboring countries insofar as they influence uh, those particular countries. And we set up an investigative project a couple of years ago to go into a little bit more depth about who exactly is profiting from conflict and corruption in those countries. And we focus on those areas because they're some of the worst uh, human rights abuses and corruption in the world uh, that continue, uh, uh, sadly, to occur there. Um, so uh, we, we were supposed to speak today about the elections, and I think it's a very, very important topic. We're just six weeks away from these uh, uh, potentially historic elections in Congo. Um, unfortunately, I would say that we're probably headed towards uh, some kind of a train wreck in Congo uh, with these with these elections, and we need uh, some strong uh, international and regional and other pressure to um, support the uh, strong Congolese efforts on the ground uh, to really have a credible electoral process. Um, so I'll go into a little bit more depth uh, on sort of the background. One of our panelists is is missing, and and the other one is having dental surgery. So um, uh, I was I was given the floor to to sp speak a little bit longer. Um, I guess the first thing I wanted to say before we get into all the uh, litany of problems uh, is that first and foremost, it's very important to note that within Congo. There are many very inspiring people and many reformers in the police and the government and civil society and um, various institutions who are calling for justice and accountability, who are calling for more transparency, who are, who are very strongly calling for uh, a real democratic transition in Congo. However, they are undermined at every step nearly by this terrible system that began with King Leopold II of Belgium, who owned uh, Congo as his own personal property uh, at the beginning, and, uh, and has continued for many years in various forms since then. Um, and, and in fact, many uh, Congolese that, that I speak to compare the current president to King Leopold in, in many different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, many people refer, so just to step back a little bit from to give some context about you know what's happening right now uh, with these elections, many people call Congo a failed state. In fact, some people have called for the breakup of Congo to make it sort of more efficient. Um, I don't believe in that, but um, I also don't believe that Congo is a failed state. It's a failure for uh, the very many um, uh, Congolese people who don't get uh, proper health and education services, who uh, are probably under a greater threat from their own military than they are from uh, from uh, armed groups, uh, and and who you know whose infrastructure is is a disaster. Um, I could play you slides of you know horrific roads. There's actually more roads 
you can believe it, in Knoxville, Tennessee, than there are all in all of the DRC. So um, uh, we did a study a couple of years ago, uh, what we called a criminal state. Um, so you can sort of guess the conclusion. Uh, but uh, we basically studied uh, the various patterns that King Leopold, Mobutu, uh, Kabila's father, and um, and the president, uh, President Joseph Kabila, have used over their various uh, uh, years of rule. Um, and, and we basically realized that they're very interesting patterns. We, we sort of uncovered um, uh, seven main patterns of ruling. Uh, but in, in summary, that uh, I- I- this has been a very efficient state, not a failed state, a very efficient state for uh, ruling networks and their commercial partners, whether they be Congolese or international, for extracting resources, hijacking state institutions, um, and maintaining the security of the regime. And so the, those people uh, who are in power uh, want to maintain those very lucrative uh, contracts and income streams that come from um, what uh, some have called uh, um, well, well, Congo is extremely rich in natural resources, but let's put it that way, trillions of dollars in, in wealth, as well as maintain the, the impunity um, that, uh, and diplomatic immunity that, um, state, um, that, that being in charge of the state will give them. So just to highlight a couple of those, um, so one of them is to actually let the security forces pay themselves. If you go into a Congolese army barracks, um, people are sort of living in squalor, uh, there because they don't get proper salaries. And so it was Mobutu who, who famously said, you have a gun, you don't need a salary, right? And that um, sort of uh, allows the, the military to go and, and uh, extract resources from the population and essentially live off of bribery or extortion. Um, it also distracts the military commanders from uh, from uh, becoming a threat to the regime because most transitions of power in Congo have happened by uh, the use of force, either internal or external. Um, and, uh, and then many of these commanders get rich. So there's many examples of them. Some of those military commanders are sanctioned today, General Amisi, General Olenga, and you know, in, in the past, their external sponsors. So Bosco and Taganda, for example, who's now at the International Criminal Court undergoing trial. Um, a second rule that we uncovered was basically to st- you need to stay in power uh, or you lose everything. Um, so it's, it's frequently happened in Congo, usually, that uh, if there's a change in regime, basically all the elites are swept away and then very few left over, but essentially you lose everything and are prosecuted or, or you have to flee or something like that. So as a result, the current leaders try to hold on to power at all costs. Um, and if you... If you look at um, the Kabila family, for example, uh, the Congo Research Group did a great study where they uncovered that they have, um, at the time, that there are even more now, some 80 companies between uh, the close members of the family involved in basically every sector in Congo, from diamonds to telecom to gold, oil, etc. cetera. Um, thirdly, uh, try to pay lip service to justice and accountability, but make sure that elites that are connected with the regime are not held accountable. So Congo has been one of the best cooperators with the International Criminal Court, for example. Some of the first cases were, um, have been tried on, on Congo for you know, various so-called warlords uh, who use child soldiers and rape as a weapon of war, etc. And yet, 
you know, one of them was Kabila's political opponent. Um, another one was a general that was connected to Uganda. So, um, but, but Kabila himself or none of those around his um, family have been, um, have been tried. Uh, and then, you know, I'll highlight one more. There's a few more in this um, study if you want to read it. But uh, is to personally profit from natural resource deals but underspend on government services. So we're going to – we're about to do a new campaign uh, in Congo kind of comparing what is lost from corruption to what the government uh, could be spending if they actually use this money effectively – um, and it's a very interesting statistic. It's going to be our first one that uh, will come out. Is uh, According to uh, the Carter Center and Global Witness, $750 million has gone missing from the state-owned mining company um, over a three-year period. Uh, if you compare that to the overall health budget in the country, uh, that is four times what the Ministry of Health uh, budget is on hospitals and medical supplies. So $161 million a year. So in other words, if they stop stealing the money, they could easily spend on the, on the services, and that would greatly improve the, the, the lives and, and well-beings of the Congolese population, but that's not happening. Um, right. So uh, what can be done to change this uh, depressing situation? Um, number one is consequences for the uh, elites and the commercial partners that are um, profiting from this situation. So... Targeted sanctions on the various networks uh, that are profiting. There have been some of those. So the U.S. sanctioned uh, last year under its uh, sort of revolutionary new tool called the Global Magnitsky Act and the executive order that went with it. Um, an Israeli businessman who's uh, been profiting heavily from uh, corrupt activities, uh, particularly in the copper and cobalt, but also gold, oil, and other sectors. His name is Dan Gertler. Uh, the, and, and, and interestingly, the U.S. not only sanctioned this individual, but also one of his business partners, who's a Belgian um, individual who lives in Congo, um, and his name is Peter Deboot, and uh, as well as uh, 35 of his companies. First they sanctioned 19, and then they got um, 16 more a few months later as Gertler tried to evade the sanctions. Um, but that's really just one person and one network. Uh, there are certainly others who have partnered with that particular network and also um, uh, other uh, really important networks. Also, anti-money laundering measures are a very important uh, element. So, um, very interestingly, uh, the U.S. U.S. and Europe actually have a lot of financial leverage on um, on what's happening in not, not just in Congo but in many parts of Africa. Um, if you uh, if you send a wire transfer, I'm sure you're familiar with the. Um, the SWIFT codes, right? So SWIFT is the organization that helps sort of connect banks through wire transfers. And they, they do studies on um, how wire transfers uh, happen and, you know, who and where they're conducted, et cetera. So they did, they published one a, f a couple of months ago, and they found that uh, the U.S. dollar and, and the euro are the currency for 74% of all transactions that originate from Africa. 74% are done in dollars or euros. It's not... You know, everyone thinks, oh, the Chinese are coming in. Well, that's actually not true. The Chinese, I think, is a 1% or something like that. Um, it's growing slightly. The RAND also is growing slightly. But it's, you know, I think it's 5, it was 5 to 5.4% or something very small. Um, so what that means is if you are sending money from, let's say, uh, New York to Kinshasa or even 
let's say you're in Beijing to Kinshasa or Kinshasa to Beijing, more than three, three times out of four, you're sending that money through New York through this SWIFT code process, and so there's US jurisdiction over those transactions. So in other words, there's a power to actually have an impact on those transactions, and Kabila, his family members, the um, uh, corrupt business people that I mentioned earlier, as, many, as well as many others, are using those same banking networks that we use. So, and interestingly, the, the banks that are being used also have correspondent banks um, who, are, who are processing those transactions, and those are the ones that we all know about here, right? Citibank, Chase, uh, Commerce Bank, et cetera. Um, and, and they have an in influence and ability to, uh, to do something about that. So that's where the anti-money laundering measures come in. If the banks pay attention to these transactions, which they do for, uh, for terrorists, uh, measures or nuclear nonproliferation issues like North Korea, um, then uh, they're certainly keeping a careful watch over them. But if, you know, K President Kabila's daughter is moving money, like they're like, oh, well, you know, whatever. Um, so um, I'm sorry if there are any bankers in the room, but uh, oftentimes these, these things are ignored unless someone helps them pay attention to them. Um, so that's sort of why we do what we do in terms of investigative research, but it's something that um, the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, financial intelligence units in Europe at, at various uh, ministries of finance can do a lot more on. Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, partnered with that um, are uh, more long-term reforms. So it's very important that um, we, we – th there are many measures in – um, uh, in resource-rich countries, and you live in one of them, Ghana, uh, that uh, uh, more progressive governments can take to combat corruption in the oil, mining um, sectors, etc. Um, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative is one of them. So it's just a great uh, conference that was held um, uh, on EITI last week in Senegal, and um, uh, they talked a lot about how to improve the transparency of natural resources by publishing natural resource contracts, by having state-owned companies be audited, um, and having the, the actual owners of those companies be published, right? A lot of, this, a lot of the times, like, some company will report the revenues that they paid, and the government will report what they got, and then you're missing the fact that um, uh, the actual owners of these companies were the president's sons and daughters, etc. And then, you know, the apples of this world will say, oh, it's very difficult to find out who they are. Well, no, it's not. You, you just have to go and dig and demand um, and threaten to pull out if they, if they don't publish it. So there are a number of different um, anti-corruption and transparency reforms that uh, need to be, that, that would help prevent um, some of the corruption and make it more difficult. Um, and, and there has been some progress on that. If you go, um, uh, well, we can go into more detail on that, but th there has been some progress. Um, and thirdly, accountability, right? So it's not enough to just freeze assets or seize assets or, you know, have banks issue some instructions and so forth. We really need um, actual judicial accountability for the perpetrators of uh, human rights abuses and, and corruption. And there has been some progress on the human rights abuse side, but what they really care about is the money. And so, uh, and it's very funny because the Enough Project 
we used to go all the time to Congo, and you know the government used to shake our hand and was very interested in what we had to say. And all of a sudden, we started reporting on corruption, and now they've banned us from the country. I'm personally on some sort of a sanctions list, um, and uh, and they harass us all the time, right? I mean, well, you see the empty chair of the ambassador here, so it's a good indication, um, right? So uh, it's been very important and to to have more prosecutions on these issues and. Um, they need to happen within Congo. We need to have more accountability on the ground, but also internationally. So, for example, uh, one of the uh, biggest companies doing resource extraction in Congo is under investigation in three different jurisdictions for possible corruption. So um, Canada, U.S. Department of Justice, and the U.K. Serious Fraud Office are investigating Glencore, famous company um, run, used to be run by Mark Rich, who was pardoned by Clinton, right? So um, uh, they, uh, they have been involved in a variety of very shady activities and partnering with Dan Gertler, and they continue to pay Gertler to this day in evading U.S. sanctions. So um, we think it's very important for officers of companies um, such as that to be um, held accountable for what they're um, doing and, and also to utilize this very important uh, war crime of pillage, um, which has to do with theft of natural resources in war, and you all have hosted events that um, describe that in more detail. Um, so uh, where are we? Um, and, and of course, the very important aspect to all of this is you know, how are we going to get any of these reforms and accountability and blah, blah, blah. We need new leadership in mm. Congo. That's very important. Mm. So that brings us to the election. Um, so, so where are we with this current election? Um, uh, it seems likely, at least according to my own view, that elections will likely be held, uh, but they will likely be very flawed. They may not be held. There is a, a risk that they will not be. Um, but uh, many, most of the Congolese uh, civil society and opposition folks that we talk to, um, uh, despite the many flaws that exist, uh, still say that they, they want them to be held. And Kambala, you may agree or disagree, but mm -hmm. at least the, the, the folks that we talk to say, say that uh, because they really see this as, a, as an historic opportunity to try to change the equation and get those important reforms enacted. Um, the, the, the flaws are, number one, that they're, um, they plan to use these voting machines, which we did an investigation on and others have done as well, uh, that uh, have been that it's, they're, they're from a South Korean company called Miro Systems, um, which tried to peddle these machines in Argentina. Argentina rejected them and outlawed them. Uh, they were then sent to Iraq. Uh, the Iraq, uh, Iraq had to rerun its election. It had many flaws there. Um, and uh, so now, you know, where are they going to sell them? Oh, well, Kabila wants to hold an election. Great. That's a great opportunity. So they signed this $100 million contract, um, and they're sending 100,000 of these machines to Congo. Um, there's a really um, entertaining video uh, on YouTube, which you can see, of, uh, of someone trying to actually use one of these machines. And everyone in the polling station can see exactly how this person's going to vote because they're, they're teaching her how to use the machine. Um, so the security is, I mean, the, there's no real um, uh, privacy of information there. Moreover, there are major security flaws in the machines, um, which is why Argentina banned them in the first place. Um, the voter roll itself is full of fraud. 17% of the people that are registered do not um, uh, have fingerprints. So 
that seems to be a major uh, um, issue. Uh, also, the opposition in civil society, um, as I'm sure Kambali will get into more detail on, um, have been banned from holding rallies. They have succeeded in holding a few where the police simply couldn't do anything about it. But nevertheless, the, uh, the, the ruling party, of course, is, uh, continues to hold their own rallies um, and, uh, and organize their, their candidacies. And, and uh, uh, several of the major opposition leaders have been banned from participating in the election. So Moise Katumbi and um, Jean-Pierre Bemba, for example. Um, uh, I would also say that uh, if, if that situation holds, either if uh, the elections are held but they're very flawed um, and, uh, or they're not held at all, there are serious uh, risks for Congo. Um, and this is where the train wreck scenario comes out. If they're not held at all, I think that many people will be in the streets uh, uh, with a lot of anger because they see this as such an important moment uh, that, they, that they want to see um, uh, progress on and, and take place. Um, if uh, what looks like it's, I would think, is probably going to happen is that uh, the government will use these voting machines and, and other methods uh, to have their chosen picked successor, uh, Emmanuel Ramazani Shadari, who is the current interior minister um, and is also under sanctions for human rights violations in, in the European Union, uh, that he would win, even though a poll came out last week uh, there's actually one of the largest public opinion polls in Africa uh, saying that um, the opposition, the main opposition candidate, Felix Chisichetti, is a two to, more than a two-to-one favorite to win. Um, uh, I, I think it's more than likely that the regime will somehow maneuver to have their person win. There obviously be, be very many people um, uh, upset, particularly since they've just seen a poll saying he's, he's yeah. very yeah. seriously behind. Um, so, so what do we do... What, what, what can be done about this? Um, uh, we, can, we, we shouldn't just sit idly by. There's, the elections are six weeks away, well, six weeks and a couple of days away. Um, we need to use the leverage that is available to help influence the process, and not just not just on this election, but also you know um, uh, to to really help move Congo away from this criminal state um, uh, system overall, so that goes past the election. So number one, it's really important for the U.S., U.N. Security Council, if we can get action there, um, uh, even the region, if possible, and the European Union to um, really focus their pressure and, and use that pressure now on what Kabila and his family care most about, which is the money. All right? They really could care less if a lot of people die, if you know, uh, they don't spend on the health care, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, what do they care most about? They care most about those, those companies, the 80 companies. They care most about those natural resource contracts. Um, and so if we can enact a few, not all of them and not on Kabila himself, but against a few key uh, members of the inner circle and some of their businesses um, through network sanctions and some of these anti-money laundering measures that the Treasury Department can take, um, that, that could send for some very important um, signals. And I think the private sector has a role to play there as well um, through the correspondent banks that I mentioned. Um, secondly, I think it would be very helpful to appoint uh, a new special envoy to Congo. We finally have um, an assistant secretary of state for African affairs. His name is Tibor Naj. He's a um, Hungarian uh, immigrant, uh, former professor at Texas Tech University. Maybe that's him calling now. 
So uh, <laughs> we also have an ambassador uh, to Congo. His name is Michael Hammer. Uh, but, uh, you know, th the reality is that the Assistant Secretary has to pay attention to 54 countries. At the same time, there's a lot going on. There's, Nigeria is going through the electoral, electoral process there. Um, and the ambassador, frankly, has to m keep his job as, you know, the guy who has to maintain some sort of diplomatic relations. So you need... Some, some sort of a special envoy. Nikki Haley was almost the um, de facto special envoy over the last year who, who really helped um, uh, pay, pay attention to Congo and help, I would say, was, was a very important factor in getting Kabila to hold these elections at all um, or to schedule them. Uh, but you really need somebody to be that point person, and uh, we all know that Haley's leaving in any case. Um, uh, and then thirdly, to continue the pressure once the elections are held, um, regardless of how they turn out, because we need a lot more transparency on the cobalt and copper trade. Um, there are many reforms that are needed. We need to have um, uh, those accountability measures and, and, and prosecutions, as I mentioned. Um, and, and lastly, to really uh, uh, move on those couple of investigations that I, uh, that I highlighted. There are other investigations going on as well, um, so that, the, that really sends the signals to uh, corrupt actors and their allies to that that you know the the the, the game is 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 over um, for that kind of behavior um, that this would no longer be be tolerated and there's you know the, the criminal state is a thing of the past so thank you thank you but what can the private sector do by way of putting pressure on this administration to enforce some of those uh, sanctions and following the money. Actually, there's a lot the private sector can do. So um, the private sector, first of all, like with banks, for example, mm -hmm. um, if they can do a lot more digging within their files of, you know, okay, we have X, Y, and Z correspondent bank from the DRC. Let's dig a lot more into those transactions and who the be beneficial owners of the companies are. Um, they, they wouldn't just be digging blind. There's reports you know, by many different NGOs, including our own, but not limited to us, um, as well as, you know, they can ask um, uh, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, for more information about who are the politically exposed persons. They can um, look at, and the companies, just go in that Congo Research Group report with the 80 companies. They just search for those 80 companies, and, you know, all of a sudden you can really start finding out a lot more information. And they can start squeezing those other banks for um, more information, more details, and threaten to cut them off um, if, they, uh, if they don't take action. Um, I guess the second thing I would highlight was, is really enforcement of the sanctions. So Gertler um, and, and Glencore are currently evading these U.S. sanctions mm -hmm. through um, transactions in euros, right? But those transactions in euros could actually be done at Citibank. We, we don't know what bank that they're done at. Um, so the banks really, they need to play a proactive role in, in, in really enforcing some of this. Um, and, and in particular, if it's, if it's in another currency, well, I mean, that's, that's maybe technically legal, but it certainly goes against the intent and spirit of the sanctions, and the European Union could soon um, enact sanctions to, um, uh, in furtherance. And it's putting pressure on the banks yep, to and investigate. The, yep. Mm -hmm. Any rate, and then we have absent our other panelist, um, Kambali Musavili, who is Congolese. He's a human rights activist, 
and also a spokesperson for Friends of the Congo, which has done a great deal of work by way of trying to get conflict stopped in the DRC. And uh, Kambali is now stationed in Accra, which I didn't know. And he's also working in South Africa and Zambia. And he has written for many publications appeared on radio shows and in film, and we look forward to hearing from you, because you've been in contact with some of the Congolese youth activists, haven't you? Yes. Um, thank you, Elizabeth, for the invitation. Um, thank you to the New York Bar for organizing this panel. It's quite timely, especially as uh, we look into Georgia and Florida. Uh, about what's actually happening there. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully we'll have a few lessons learned uh, from uh, this country that we could uh, take back also in the Congo uh, as we try to have elections. Um, but I'll start first with a, I pulled this quote from Dr. Mukwege. Um, Dr. Mukwege just uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize. He's a Congolese doctor working at a Pansy Hospital. Um, for the few, or probably the past couple of years, He's been making some uh, statements that some will consider a, a bit political. But every time he speaks, um, or he makes a uh, every time he makes a statement, it's really toward allowing people outside of the Congo to actually understand the situation in the Congo. So uh, in a, an article published uh, last month, he said, when they asked him about the elections, I think we'll have elections on December 23rd. But I think we will elect the same people and the same actors uh, will produce the same system that perpetuate the violence. The December elections do not seem to be credible or transparent. It's a parody of an election. So whenever he made a statement, uh, that made me think because um, no, we are now in 2018. I became active uh, full time in trying to do something about the Congo. Some people call me activist but I call myself Congolese, right? Because I want to see change in my country. And that was June 2008. I was still in North Carolina. And I'm looking that now back, it's not 10 years. Uh, what I've observed over the years is that people usually do not listen to the Congolese and the policies that they propose. And whenever that happened, every time we end up coming to manage the problem to try to come out of an impasse. So the impasse that we see now, we have to look at it from an historical perspective. But I'm not going to go all the way back to 96, 2001, what has unfolded. But I will look at uh, December 2016, right? So if we remember that time properly, you will know that on December 19, 2016, Kabila was supposed to end his term. Second term, the Constitution says he cannot stay be beyond. But as we talk today, it's been two years. What could, people have, uh, what could people have done in 2016 for us not to be here? So as we talk about even policies that we have to push for the Trump administration, we should ask ourselves, what did Obama do at the time to make sure that before he comes out of the office that we don't continue with the situation? So the context that we are in today is, is in part because the president of the Congo has shown um, over time, that he does not want to leave power, and he has stayed two years beyond the end of his presidential term limit. But also, the reason why 
is not able to continue beyond two years is because of something that sometimes missed the resistance of the Congolese people. Because as he's tried the machination of tr either trying to change the constitution and delaying elections, the people themselves have taken matters into their own hand, have mobilized in different parts of the country, but they've paid a heavy price. Mm -hmm. And the people who've paid a heavy price that we cannot forget are a young woman by the name of Therese Kapangala, who participated in one of the protests and she was shot inside of a church. Uh, you have uh, Luke Kulula of Lucha, who uh, died uh, where they locked him in the house and burned the house and he died, pr pretty much burned to death in this house. And we have another young Congolese by the name of Rossi Mukendi who was trying to protect the churchgoers who were ready uh, to go protest and he was shot also in front of a church. And there are so many other young Congolese uh, who have lost their lives as they resisted um, the current system. But then there are others who are still alive uh, Wab Jelna, Carbon Beni of Filimbi, who is in jail. Uh, Christian Lumu Lukasa, uh, Lukusa, who is a, a youth leader of uh, the UDPS Youth League, uh, who's been in jail since November 22nd of last year. Uh, so it's almost a year in jail, but you don't hear about his name. And just lately, uh, I think this past week, uh, we had a Gloria Senga, uh, another young Congolese woman uh, who's been active, who's been jailed. The reason I'm pointing that out uh, for you is um, in the analysis, Congolese are almost uh, not seen as agents of change. So you see the situation happening, but you don't hear. Are Congolese resisting? Yes, but you don't hear the stories. And it's important to shine light on those issues. And I always remind people about Egypt. When you think about the Egyptian mobilizing to remove Mubarak, <coughs> And there were young Egyptian in Tahir Square. When they were interviewed, sometimes they said the reason why they're staying in Tahir Square is because they know there are people outside of Egypt who are standing with them, and they will stay there another day to know the courage. And this is a call for you uh, as, as you think about how can you even help the Congolese situation. It is important for the Congolese to know that they are not alone in this struggle. Uh, because they're facing the life bullet, they're facing the challenges of transforming the country, but sometimes they do not know that the world is by their side. Uh, the third thing now that we also have to take into account are the regional players. While we've had resistance on the inside of Congolese making sure that Kabila does not stay beyond his presidential term limit, we've also had uh, regional players such as Angola. Uh, they have been very vocal about making sure that Kabila stepped down. Uh, we've actually had Botswana, uh, the former president of Bots Botswana, and even the current president of Botswana, uh, Masisi, who clearly stated that Kabila must step down. And we've had South Africa in some shape and form also putting pressure to make sure that elections are actually taking place. And the international community has also pushed uh, for um, Kabila to organize elections. Um, so th those things also have played a role in um, the two-year game of Kabila, will he stay or will he not stay? But we, we cannot just look at the resistance and international players and say that Kabila is going to leave power. That's not the reality. Uh, right now, Kabila controls the state institutions. He controls the military. He controls the police. He controls the intelligence agencies. He controls the so-called independent electoral commission um, that 
when you look at even how the current political process is set up by him uh, through his Minister of Information, Mendes, saying that he will not run, uh, it still shows that the results that's going to be produced will be controlled by the Kabila system. Um, just lately, they have created a common front called FCC, uh, which has a few cadre, uh, cadre of the majority party, uh, some of whom will find themselves into political cabinet if the person who's been announced to run for president on behalf of Kabila uh, wins. So we know already that we'll have some challenges uh, if elections happen around the credibility of the results. Um, but we have a lot of things really good on our side in terms of Congolese. But one of them that's very good around our side is that Kabila has no legitimacy in the country. So no matter what the result uh, that will be announced if elections happen on December 23rd, uh, it is predictable that people will rise up uh, against it. And that's actually one of the worries uh, that I have. So by um, Kabila not having legitimacy, it gives another space legitimacy. And the space that's, uh, that has legitimacy is the opposition of the Congo. Unfortunately, um, uh, the opposition is bankrupt. Uh, they lack ideas. They sometimes self-centered and sometimes don't serve the interests of the people. So the Congolese people are caught in this circle where on one hand, they want to see change and they want Kabila to leave. On the other hand, they have a weak opposition that's not able to mobilize and actually uh, resonate with the population around the change in the country. So what's the way out? Uh, I can't give you that because I, I don't think that the situation in the Congo is a linear um, situation where you know, I can't say in black and white, these are the things that will happen. But this is what I know needs to actually happen. And it's not going to happen from New York or Washington or Paris. It will have to happen from the ground. It will take education mobilization from the people on the ground themselves to be able to create a counterpower there. Um, they have been doing that. And as, uh, that's why I pointed out to you, uh, it will be critical as Congolese organize that they have people on the outside lifting up their names and their voices. Um, you know, uh, Sasha just spoke about the sanctions. You know, he ended up in the sanctions. Uh, there are people, I mean, I actually envy him. You know, he can't travel to Congo. I can't travel to the Congo. I haven't been in the Congo since uh, 1998. And uh, just last month, uh, a colleague of mine who was arrested in Kinshasa uh, called me to let me know you better not show up in Congo because I was questioned about your activities uh, in the DRC. Um, and as he shared that, you know, you know a Belgian white guy arrested in the Congo and I was planning to be in Congo in November. No warning me for that. So, but what can protect then those who are actually behind, right? Who are on the ground? If a young Congolese is arrested, will people lift up their names around the world? Will people know who they are? And I know for a fact, uh, two of our uh, young Congolese were arrested. One of them was a lawyer uh, about a year ago. The only reason they were uh, released was international pressure from international organization. So you had the uh, Avocats Sans Frontières, uh, lawyers without borders, who actually wrote letters directly to the Minister of Human Rights, 
by the way, the Congo has a Ministry of Human Rights uh, that should let you know uh, the challenges that we face. Severely underfunded. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and it was quite interesting that uh, the young people were released and the Minister of Human Rights, three days after their release, made a comment on the Twitter page, I just made a call to the jail and they're being released right now. So she wasn't even informed that they were already out of jail. Um, so that's one thing to, to keep in mind. As the Congolese youth organize, mobilize, um, and educate the masses in, on the ground, they will need people outside of the Congo to lift up their name and stay with them uh, as they will face definitely a brute force in front of them. Uh, the second thing that we also have to remember is the history of the Congo. There could be spontaneous change in DRC. We have seen that in our history, our current history, and even in 1958, as we think about it. Now, if you think from the context of 1958, young Congolese without guns mobilizing had a dream that we needed to be free for colonization. There were probably people somewhere in New York discussing this is not possible because our ally Belgium is doing ABCD. Right? No one actually believed that these young people could transform. But it happened so fast with the will of the people that forced a plan of having Congo independent 30 years from 1960 to become independent in 1960. Right? And I see the same happen. Why? Because I also saw it in 2015. In 2015, one of the um, machinery uh, processes that Kabila wanted to introduce was they were going to introduce an electoral law that will mandate to have a census prior to election. What that actually meant was that um, it will de facto extend this day because you will not be able to do a census in the country in a very short period of time. The politicians did the game in parliament and so on, but it was actually the Congolese youth who stopped it. Right? So in my lifetime, I saw how young Congolese put their bodies on the line in the street of Kinshasa on, on 19th of January 2015 for two weeks shut down a city of 15 million people and made the government of the Congo remove a law that they wanted to pass. Right? So I know they have that power to transform and it could be spontaneous. So that's the other thing I'm also looking at as well. Uh, but those are the two elements I wanted to bring, but it's really um, I could go with those points, you know, call your congressman, call uh, Donald Trump, you know, there are all the challenges in this country at, the, at this time. Uh, but what is going to be important? And the Congo case is, has never been a partisan issue, right? Republicans and Democrats have the same policy when it comes to the African continent, and particularly the Congo. So what we will recommend for people to be is to be at the side of the Congolese in the struggle. If we call on you today to say, at this time, we need you to call Susan Rice because she's blocking the UN report exposing Rwanda for supporting rebel group, I hope you will do that. If today we say to you uh, that there are young Congolese who are in jail who need your support so that they don't feel alone and the world knows that, we will do that. And if we want you also to put pressure, which is actually correct, on Glencore, uh, who's funding uh, Dan Gottler, who has been almost like the uh, safe where Kabila keeps his money, uh, to put pressure on him uh, by holding companies, supporting him accountable, 
Uh, that's also something that's going to be done. So it's not a silver bullet solution. It's that Congolese are looking for partners around the world who actually believe it's important for Congo to be free. And that's the message. Why should people in this room care about the Congo? This is a country the size of Western Europe, right in the heart of Africa, that since 1885, the people in that area have not been able to determine their affairs. If they are able to do that, I believe that the African continent is going to be free. I used to say that as almost this dream, right? And I've been living in Ghana for now a few months. And I've been able to meet with people who worked with the Krumah administration. And I've been, I was asking so many questions. There, there is actually a Congolese community, Congolese who received scholarship after Lumumba became prime minister, because he was already there in 1958. They gave them scholarship to come and live in Ghana. They are still there. They have families that benefited from that, right? And they reminded me that when we even think about the Congolese independence, people think it's Congolese alone. It was African. Africans came together to make sure that a young Congolese whom they met in 1958 in Accra is going to go back with financial resources and human resources. And there are names of people who were not Congolese who worked with them. André Blouin from Central African Republic, who became uh, Lumumba's uh, chief of protocol. She was there. She's the one who wrote many of uh, Patrice Lumumba's speeches. So when people quote Patrice Lumumba, they should know that a woman wrote that speech. So, right? so, and, and there are many others who came there. So they saw this young man going to the heart of Africa, say, hey, the Congo River can provide electricity to the entire African continent. If it is free, it can power electricity for everyone. While me, Kwame Nkrumah, I'm going to work with the dam that I have to provide electricity to my country, which he did, and he provided to many others. So today, that same dream, as I'm talking to other Africans on the African continent, they feel the same way. And that's the message that I have for you. It's not a silver bullet solution, it's partnership that Congolese people need at this time as they strive to have a free and liberal Congo. Will we have elections? We'll see. But even if we have elections, the struggle is not over, and we hope you can stay with us in the struggle to free the Congo. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Now questions from the audience. And would you identify yourself? And also, we'll take three questions at a time. And if you want to direct them to a particular, all we have left two people do. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Issa. I work with the African Union Community. The question is for Sasha. You said earlier that we could, should, I mean, the banks should look into all these transactions and maybe do something about it. But banks are business. What, what would motivate them to do that? Do they care about people in, Cong in the Congo or themselves? So what would be the incentive? Maybe the question for Kambale is, we see that every time the youth rises, they shoot a, a few of them and they go back. Mm -hmm. Then they rise up again, they do the same thing. And they go back to the trenches, come back again. So. Do you, how long this uh, scenario will last? And do you think losing all these lives 
will end up or give the result that all of us are expecting. And another question? And would you identify yourself? My name is Isaac Bogdanson, and I'm from the World African Diaspora Union. I'd like to know what is the role of the African Union in all this? The African Union represents all 54 countries. So, so I suggest, I recommend that pressure should be brought to bear on the African Union. Because when they go abroad, they claim to speak on behalf of all the countries. They have a mission in this country, United, the United Nations. They have an ambassador to the United States, so clearly the African Union has a role. Pressure should be brought to bear on them. Um, my sister, thank you for that. Because I was thinking, if you, if, if a bank robber is robbing the bank, would you go to the bank robber and say, could you make the bank more secure for me, please? Absolutely not. So if the private sector is the one who's benefiting from the very system, why would the private sector say, I'm going to make this more secure, I'm going to get some security all of a sudden? Absolutely not. And thirdly, my brother, you did search and where I was going. You said you didn't want to go to the fiscal background because of course it's the case now. But we can't leave out the 1884, 85 Berlin Conference when the imperialist Europeans conquered <coughs> Africa and Leopold was assigned the entire um, Congo, not just um, to, to the country of Belgium, but Leopold, it was his first and fiefdom. And so all that violence that we see in place, that we know the thing where African feet were cut off, they didn't get X amount of rubber each day. Their hands were cut off. We have to go right back to them. And finally, pan Africanism is a solution. You just mentioned it. Oh, Africans from the Congo, you know, in Ghana, and so on, you're selling furniture. Pan Africanism finally is the, is the solution. The AU, could you tell me about the AU, the word AU? Thank you. And is there a third question? Yes. Yes. My name is Didier. I'm Congolese. I have a question for uh, Sasha. So, what have you been, uh, have you, there been any efforts geared towards lobbying uh, in DC designed to get some kind of legislation passed to make sure that these special interests, special companies operating in Congo have some oversight? For instance, uh, taking a look at uh, what kind of, how they move their money and how they can restrict that money movement. Great. Um, do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, okay. So in terms of youth resistance, um, I don't know if they go back when they are struggling, right? I think they get demoralized because they don't feel that people are around and actually know what's happening. So that's why I use the example of uh, 2015. You know, it was quite fascinating to see actually what these young people were able to achieve during the time. Just to go in detail, they cut off the internet, right? They cut off SMS in the country, yet they were able to get information about what was happening on the ground because they knew if they were able to get it out of the country, um, people will relate. And the Congolese diaspora played a huge role in relaying what they were actually doing at the time because there was no communication, right? But because of the spirit as they were mobilizing and, and doing actions on the ground, and they knew that they were not alone, they, within the courage that they had, they were able to see the result of that. But now, the death toll is what? I argue that at least 400 people were killed. The reason why I say at least 400 people were killed is because in March of that, uh, it was March or April of that year, in Kinshasa, 
there was a mass grave found of 400 bodies in it. And the government stated that these are bodies of fetuses found in morgue across the country. And Human Rights Watch has called for investigation on it. Till today, there has not been investigation of that. I believe many of the young people who pay the price that they were are in the mass grave in Maluku, in Kinshasa. And there have been many others, um, movement at the time. So that's on one level. On the second level, um, the thing that I've found has been challenging with youth movement. Unfortunately, there is also outside interference in Congolese youth movement. So what has caused is you have these, um, they did that also in Egypt. The State Department got engaged with youth groups in Egypt and created distrust amongst the youth who were fighting for Mubarak. So it became who is funded by the State Department uh, through their affiliate. And that's also one of the reasons when Hillary Clinton went to Egypt, some of the youth did not want to meet Hillary Clinton in Egypt because after Mubarak was gone, the, the US government did not do much for them. Those same realities are finding themselves out and it's playing itself out in ways that there are specific youth groups who are lifted, lifted up in history without taking account of everyone else that's actually fighting. And it's, make, it's fragmenting uh, the youth movement on the ground. But I'm still confident that it's not about the names of which organization is doing what. It's that the people themselves, from the people in the market to even the police officers. You see, Therese Kapangala, uh, who was killed, her father is a police officer. right? So he, feel, he must feel a certain way about even the regime that his daughter was killed while she was in church, you know, getting ready to, to go out for a protest. So the people as a whole, their spirit is already for change that what we have to do a, a better job of doing is to making sure that we're relaying uh, solidarity messages to them so that they don't feel that's alone. So what I would propose is to go to telema.org we build that website. Telema is a Lingala word. Uh, that means rise up. Um, and we, we're using the platform to relay messages to there. And there is a section like telema.org for slash solidarity where you can actually write solidarity messages and we translate them into French and share it with our partners on the ground. So that's a small thing that I, I can present. On the African Union, um, the African Union as an institution has lost its core values that was laid out uh, by Kwame Krumah uh, whenever African leaders came together to create it. Uh, it has become a cartel of African leaders where none of them has the courage to tell the other leader that you are doing something wrong. So at the same time, you know, when you look at the African Union, uh, you will see how um, people such as Ali Bongo or Kagame, Museveni, and others are not held accountable. So we can't talk about the elections in the Congo, but what about what's happening in Uganda? You know, the President Museveni has been there for almost th uh, three decades already, but the African Union is not holding him accountable. But we should go back to Kwame Krumah's speech in 1963 in May at uh, uh, the OAU, where he laid out what should the African, uh, a united Africa should be, and he created the five pillars of what will create a true African Union. So it is, I as a young African working on the continent at the moment, will now look to the African Union uh, for solution, will pressure the African Union, will expose its inability to address African issues, 
and call for an alternative uh, to the African Union, which is, as we speak, there are young Africans on the continent mobilizing to create a uh, solution to the aspirations of Africans today. And those aspirations is similar to what's happening in Ghana with the people wor worrying that there is a military base being built. Yes, uh, in the country, the people of Niger wondering why we have drone bases. And as in the Congo, letting them know, we know all about war. It's been two decades, and we've lost six million of our people. We need to come together. So African youth are talking with each other to create a counter response to um, what the African Union is doing now. Um, in terms of lobby, I've said I am very clear that the United States government, the United States Congress, is very well informed about the situation in the Congo. The reason why I say that, they have the Congressional Resource Service uh, that helped uh, every legislator uh, to find out about any laws. Some of them have even traveled in the Congo. They have shared with us, you know, there is no political will and so on. After 10 years, I don't believe it anymore. But I'll point that to you, uh, a law that I believe is the strongest law that can be used. There is no other law that you can create today after this law was enacted that will be stronger than this law. This law is called Public Law 109.456. I met the people who actually met with Barack Obama as a senator to get this law actually implemented. Right? So Barack Obama as a senator in 2005 met with people in Chicago uh, another Chicago, actually, they met at a prior breakfast in uh, Washington, D.C., where they brought him the issue of the Congo. And he took on that call. He told them, I will do something about it. With bipartisan effort, he wrote a law called Democratic Republic of Congo Relief Security Democracy Promotion Act of 2006. It was signed into law by George Bush. When it was signed into law, Barack Obama was so furious that George Bush was not implementing this law. That he even wrote the letter to George Bush, say it is time for the White House to appoint a special envoy. Why did he say that? That law in his section uh, 107 calls for a special envoy to the Great Lakes region. Right? So you don't need to appeal to Congress, to legislator, to do something that the law already say we need to have a special envoy. The first time a special envoy was appointed to the Congress from that law was, I think, in 2012, where Senator, uh, former Senator Feingold, Ambassador Feingold, became the special envoy. Before that, they told that story is about special representative being special envoy and playing games in Congress, which you'll be frustrated if you are coming on the Hill as someone who truly believes that legislators can have moral, you'll be depressed. But we know that we have a law. Section 105 of that law says that the United States has, the Secretary of State has the power to evolve the aid to any nation destabilizing the Congo. There is also a section in that law that calls for holding corporations accountable. Right? So we already have a framework that exists. The question should be asked, if we have a law that was signed since 2006, and from that time to now 2008, uh, 2018, and we have new laws being signed, new resolution being passed. Why isn't this law being enforced? It was enforced one time when the US government withheld $200,000 to the Rwandan military 
for supporting rebel groups in Congo in 2012. Let me say that again, $200,000, right? It wasn't much, but when they did that, it showed the political will of the U.S. shifting. And you know what that did? Other Western nations revealed aid to run at the same time. So there are frameworks. There, are, uh, there is a framework that exists that's not implemented. Sometimes they don't even let you know this law exists. I would not encourage for new law to be implemented. It could be a measure, but it would be good to look at what's there and tell them just implement your law. You wrote it. You signed it into law. Just implement it. Um, sure. Yeah, a couple comments. Um, first, uh, not to answer anyone's question, but uh, to uh, just comment on what you said, uh, Kambale. Uh, I just want to thank you for um, highlighting uh, all the 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 brave um, activists who either sacrificed their lives or who are currently um, sacrificing uh, everything in Congo by being imprisoned. Um, uh, that's one thing I, I failed to mention, um, but the Congolese government is continuing to arrest um, activists uh, on a daily basis. Uh, we read about new ones uh, every day, and, and uh, you know, it's a deliberate strategy to try to undermine um, the democratic uh, movement in Congo, which is, which is uh, <coughs> uh, very tragic, unfortunate. There's actually a really great uh, m film about this. I don't know if it's available anywhere, Kinshasa Makambo. Yes, it's, um, being shown, yeah, yes. it's being shown across the U.S. And it's going to be shown, isn't in it? New York, yes. yeah. in, Village uh, Cinema. Right. Yeah. Village Cinema. Yes. The, if you come to Friends of the Congo website, we have the links to where this film is being shown. It's called Kinshasa Makambo. It's talking about what young Congolese activists are doing on the ground. Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. It highlights a few individuals and sort of tracks them through the... Um, the the stories and, and you mentioned um, one of them Christian Limbu who is still uh, who's who's now in jail um, for that so right on to your questions um, good questions um, I'll take them in reverse order just for fun so uh, on the legislation yeah good question so first of all um, yes there is some new legislation coming down the pike uh, but also uh, we have existing legislation that we need to as Kambale said enforce much better and, and really highlight um, uh, uh, some of the aspects of the existing laws so um, so with the legislation that's coming uh, that's coming online uh, there is something called I believe it's called the Democracy Promotion Act, or perhaps the De Demo Congo Democracy Act, something like that. It was introduced in the House of Representatives. We're trying to get it voted on the floor, um, and we're working on a Senate version uh, at the moment. Uh, it was introduced, I think, three months ago or something like that. Uh, bipartisan manner, it, was, uh, it went through the committee the very same week. Um, and basically it says that um, if the Congolese government doesn't hold elections on time, and if these elections are not free and credible, then it authorizes the United States to, you know, do the things that, that we discussed earlier in terms of sanctions and anti-money laundering measures on the regime. And, and there's some specific provisions about kind of, like, uh, the administration has to submit a list of these people to Congress by a certain date, I believe it's 90 days or something, and then um, that goes forward. So that would actually be a very powerful tool if it was passed and we're... we're um, uh, we're actively working to try to get that introduced in the, in the Senate. Um, but there are several existing laws that are very relevant to uh, this area that are on the books now. So first of all is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, right? If, we, if, the, if, if someone uncovers some 
um, act of corruption, whether it's a foreign company or anyway, it has to be a U.S. Um, uh, company in some way or shape or form, although the foreign companies can also be prosecuted if they are um, using U.S. dollars or some of the money goes through the United States. So that thing I talked about earlier about like, you know, Kinshasa, Singapore goes through New York, all of a sudden you get some U.S. jurisdiction in there um, uh, can be enforced. And uh, I will use that to address your question about the banks, right? So uh, in some cases, it can cost a lot more to hide these issues, not paying attention to them, than uh, to actually address them right up front. So I'll use a fun example. Uh, there's a hedge fund based here in New York called Akzif. Okay, they're, they were, they're a publicly traded uh, hedge fund. Um, so you can buy their stock if you really choose to do so. Uh, they gave a, uh, a large loan, unspecified amount, hundreds of millions of dollars to this guy um, who's under sanctions, Dan Gertler, okay? And uh, it came out in the court proceedings that uh, someone, the, dude, the, the lawyer uh, who was doing the due diligence for the hedge fund said that, oh, this Gertler guy, boy, he looks like the guy who... Um, uh, the movie Blood Diamond was created, was, was sort of kind of based on, right? So um, nevertheless, they went ahead with the loan. Well, they knew exactly what was going to happen with the money, and sure enough, Gertler, uh, it w the, the DOJ, who later prosecuted an FCPA case on this, found that on this date, he paid $5 million to Kabila. On this date, he paid $10 million to his chief of staff on this, you know, so there, there are millions of dollars literally of bribe payments for these, um, uh, for this, this, uh, uh, for, for, that came from the loan from the hedge fund, right? So what happened to the hedge fund? Well, <laughs> two of their officers uh, were prosecuted for, um, for this. Uh, I think that case is still ongoing, but importantly, the, the company has majorly suffered. So their share price since the start of the investigation has gone down 90%. Okay. So if you're a company and you're involved in these FCPA violations and particularly you know about it, cause there's, I mean, now that there's so much information out there between various reports, uh, you, you really uh, had better <laughs> start doing something about it. Otherwise, your company could basically go under. Like, I don't know if the Oxif is going to survive. 90% 90, 90 share price drop is a, is a pretty significant um, thing. So part of it is incumbent upon us as citizens to um, try to uncover some of that corruption and, you know, um, speak to law enforcement about it or publish reports or, you know, work with whistleblowers, et cetera, to... to get access to that. Um, a couple of other laws to be that are relevant, and I'll be brief, but one is the uh, very interesting one called Global Magnitsky. So M Mr. Magnitsky was a, um, uh, a Russian uh, investor who was, who was killed in, in, a, in a jail under um, President Putin. Um, and so there's a Magnitsky Act, which sort of is the basis for sanctions against Russia, um, the Russian entities, and then we helped along with many others, uh, passed something called Global Magnitsky. So it all of a sudden gives the United States this very, very extensive authority to put sanctions against anybody who's involved in corruption anywhere around the world or human rights abuses. It's a, an extremely powerful authority. And believe it or not, the Trump administration issued an executive order on this late last year. 
in December that um, really laid out the sanctions authorities, and that's what they sanctioned Gertler, um, as well as some Burmese human, uh, generals and some others um, uh, under, which is a very powerful tool. Lord knows if it will stick around, but for now, it's a very, very relevant um, tool, and, and you know, all of us should be making the case out there in the public, like, these, here are the individuals that we need to be sanctioning under that program, and here's the reasons why and the evidence. Um, trust me, these people are listening, and, and they need more funding, because I, I know the people who are actually involved in, like, writing the sanctions packages, and they're, like, three people. So um, uh, that's part of the problem, but, uh, but uh, it's a very relevant authority. Um, uh, there's, anyway... Uh, there are others, other laws out there. Um, I, I agree with Kambale on the African Union. It's sort of a club of dictators, right? That's the, part of the problem. I mean, I think it, it was clearly founded with much better intentions. Um, uh, guess who's going to be president of the AU next year? Sisi. Well, good luck in getting any sort of democratic accountability mm -hmm. anywhere. Mm -hmm. So um, when you have such people, uh, you, you know, who don't want to see democracy in their own country, when they don't want to see um, anti-corruption reform, I mean, this is supposedly the AU year of corruption or year against corruption, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. They're doing nothing. Um, so that's really a, a shame. I, I, hold, I hold very little hope there, um, unfortunately. Um, but I think that there are ways to... Um, I mean, there, there are clearly reforms that need to happen there. Um, there was an AU envoy, by the way, to the DRC who basically jumped right into bed with Kabila um, on the first day that he came there, um, Edem Kojo, um, former uh, uh, Togolese leader. Um, and he was seen as a disaster in Congo because he basically bought the government line um, uh, hook, line, and sinker. Um, and so, uh, you know, clearly they need to play a role. They need to be much more proactive. Um, exactly how that can happen, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Thanks. Thank you. Are there... Yes, Sylvie. Um, the third is about 
the corruption that we cite. Um, I mean, we all know that extraction economies are, you know, <coughs> subject to crimes, enormous crimes and corruption. Is there a framework in the trade, in trade um, to track royalties and all this? There is no future in a, in a democracy if you have multinationals. And it's not just the bank. The extraction economy, I mean, the, the, the big multinationals making money are, are the minerals. What can be done? Uh, to stop the greedy. Uh, uh, yes. First, Lisa. Lisa. Okay. Um, so you both spoken about the importance of Americans uh, uh, raising up their names and knowing what's going on. Um, but you must also know that that information did not come, did not flow to our media. And um, I've been writing for about 20 years, so I always put the names of the organizations. But in, in the news articles, but people are not knowing, people who read it, it doesn't translate it to, and, and three quarters of the names, or maybe 90% of the names were just mentioned I never heard of before. So, um, you know, we who can be the mouthpiece and broadcast, number one, you're not getting information, but number two, even if we did, even if it appeared one week in the Amsterdam news or something like that, that's not effective, you know, and I think it has to be through the, civil society organizations, through the labor unions, through the churches, and it's up to you, unfortunately, you're, you have to do everything, but, but unless you mobilize those groups to mobilize us on the ground, we can do something. But just for me to say, Kambali, you know, so they don't know how to reach you, and, they, and you, you don't want to work one by one by one, you know, so we have to work with our organizations, and that's, I think, you know, we come here and, you know, get this rich information about what's happening on the ground, but we're not gonna be able to do anything by ourselves. So we need to work with the organizations that we belong to. We belong to a labor union, a church, uh, you know, a, uh, a housing project or something like that. So those things, those that's where I think you really need to put your, your thanks. Mm. So it's not a question, but. Thank you. Yes, sir, and your organization. You know, oftentimes we talk about the corruptees on the African continent. And uh, nobody would really make a big deal of the corruptors, the multinational corporations. They are former, you know, uh, colonial masters and so forth, who wants the resources of Africa for practically nothing. They don't want to pay for it, right? They like to get it for free. Whether we have an election in, in, uh, in the Congo, and whoever uh, becomes elected, life will go wrong. The corruption will continue because they didn't kill Patrice Lumumba because uh, he was corrupt. And many of the other progressive leaders we've had in the African continent, they were not killed because they were corrupt. They were killed because they had the interest of Africa at heart. They were nation builders. They wanted to uh, uh, replace them with corruptees, and they have succeeded. So to look to the West, to look to America and Europe to solve our problems, it's not gonna get done. So we have to come to the realization a long time ago that our, our 
future is dependent upon us. We can ask any European or United States to come to our assistance. We have to be able to do it. I want to just read this quote real quick from the British, former British foreign minister by the name of Boris Johnson. And those of you who don't want to take the words of this man serious, then, you know, I have what else to say. He said, and I quote, the best fate for Africa would be if the old colonial powers or their citizens scrambled once again in her direction on the understanding that this time they will not be asked to feel guilty. Thank you. And do you have a question for the panelists? My question to the panelists is what is, in your honest opinion, Besides the corruptees that we have, because the corruptors can check, they have to check and balance it if they want to, to prevent these corruptees from, from plundering the few dollars from the people. And what they take from their people is nothing compared to what the, uh, the, uh, you know, the other folks yeah. take from us. So how, in your humble opinion, would actually Africa go about trying to build itself up into a, a world body that we all can be proud as Africans, and the world can sit back and, and, and respect us. How can we go about doing that? Thank you very much. Do you want to address the three questions in what order you wish? Oh, more, than, more than three. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, there, the I think each person had three. The 20 so. questions, <laughs> the three people. <laughs> OK, um, I, I'll start. You can. Have the last word, Kabali. So, um, uh, right. Uh, well, I'll go in opposite order as well. So, um, yeah, thanks for your question, sir. I, I think that the, uh, uh, in an ideal world, uh, you know, we wouldn't demand so many cell phones and we, we wouldn't need all these minerals because uh, we, uh, we, we, we wouldn't consume all these uh, various products that need them. Um, but the reality is that that's, that is our reality, right? We are going to drive more electric cars. And by the way, uh, electric cars require cobalt for the batteries. And guess where 60% of the world's cobalt is? Congo, right? The, the, the demand curve is, you know, not a curve. It's more like a, like, looks like Mount Everest um, over the next uh, 20 years. So, um, uh, and the same thing for tantalum and tin and gold and diamonds and all these things that we really don't need, but but we are consuming them. So there you are. Um, so uh, I, I think... You know, the point is that um, we in the West and, and in the global community generally um, are, are interacting with Congo very on a daily basis. Um, we're inter interacting with Congo right now. I'm sure this microphone itself contains minerals from Congo. So um, the point is, uh, what can we do to try to regulate those transactions? What can we do to make those transactions legal? What can we do to... Um, uh, make those transactions transparent and non-corrupt so that the money is flowing uh, to help benefit the Congolese people on the ground and not some Swiss bank account or New York hedge fund or, you know, or, or some, you know, villa in South Africa that Kabila uh, has. So um, that's, I think, what, what a lot of our efforts at Enough are aimed at is really trying to 
um, uh, make the, those transactions a lot more transparent and and hold those people and companies accountable that are breaking those rules. We just put out a report last week on um, something It's called the golden laundry math. It's something that I and colleagues were um, uh, doing for the last couple of years, uh, which basically uncovered that a, um, a gold trading network run by a Belgian who's based in, in uh, Uganda um, has been essentially uh, laundering conflict gold um, from uh, from areas controlled by armed groups all the way here to the United States, Amazon and 283 companies reported that they that these that that network may be in their supply chains. So um, you know by uncovering those kind of corrupt practices and criminal activity, we want to hold those people accountable and make sure that um, that, that legitimate um, Congolese or other businesses can. Um, actually uh, uh, extract according to the, the right rules. Um, a couple of other questions. Uh, yeah, I agree with your comments about the information. I mean, I, a lot of, I, I think for us anyway, it is, it's, it's a question of um, how do you connect what's happening on the ground to our daily lives? So that's one example of like electric cars and, and, and cell phones that require all these minerals and that kind of thing. Both of our organizations have, have uh, tried to um, do that in, in different ways. Um, you know, the whole Coney 2012 campaign was about sort of uh, uh, connecting our children to children uh, on the ground. You know, uh, say what you will about um, about that campaign, but I think it helped people understand a little bit better of what is actually happening um, happening on the ground, so that there is some sort of uh, connection. So I think that you know that that's that's important. I, I think we need to do a better job also of you know, really um, highlighting and portraying those those individuals who are struggling and who have sacrificed their lives and so forth to um, uh, in furtherance of this democratic um, struggle. Um, I, I know very little about the evangelical question, so I'll, I'll, I'll punt on that one. Sorry. Um, on Rwanda, I, I mean, there's a very long history there, um, but I will just say very briefly that um, uh, it's very important when they're uh, you know, Rwanda invaded Congo and, and has done so by proxy. And, and in the last iteration, the, the, there was a, a, a policy change whereby we didn't turn a blind eye. We actually um, uh, finally did something about it uh, by one of was withholding the military aid. But I, I, would, I would say even more prominently, um, we got the U.S. to stop the World Bank funding, which was a very large percentage of the Rwandan budget, um, very under-publicized. But uh, when they realized that their, like half of their government budget was going to be on hold if they continued supporting this rebel group in Congo, um, they really started to think twice about what, was, um, what the, effa the effect on the country was going to be. Um, and it wasn't just us. There were many, many groups involved in the UN and Human Rights Watch and, and others. Um, but uh, basically, uh, you know, we need to put a check on that uh, vicious criminal behavior that has occurred so many different times. And not just by Rwanda, Uganda, Angola, Zimbabwe. I mean, by the way, the new president of Zimbabwe was named in many UN reports as owning um, uh, extractive uh, diamond uh, concessions in Congo. Um, so I'm pretty concerned about what that's going to lead to. So um, uh, I think, but I think in, in some, uh, uh, you know, if we in the international community and civil society can really call out some of that behavior and, and use the levers that we have on these governments, then, um, then that can help change the situation.
Hmm. Any further questions? Okay. I'm sure Kambali well, has a few words to say about that. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Um, Don't need so for, I want to go first to your comment, Lisa. Um, it's a long-term project. It takes a lot of energy. Some days you'll sleep very tired. I'm sure you know those feelings. And you wonder what people do, right? But some days you'll wake up and be very happy because an action that you fought for finally happened. And we're not the first ones to do it. Uh, there are people also in the 1800s that did the same. I would did the same. And these people, their names are not known. I mean, it's n not just for the goodwill of the Western powers that they took Congo away from King Leopold. No, there were people who actually got on the boat for three months, went to the Congo, saw what was happening. William Shepard, first African-American Presbyterian missionary to the Congo. He saw what was taking place there, took pictures, came back to the US, mobilizing around Alabama and different places, telling people what was actually happening there. George Washington Williams, who actually coined the term uh, crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. He also went to the Congo himself, sent a letter to the United States president saying, why are we still supporting King Leopold in the Congo? Booker T. Washington, he wrote an article called The Cruelty in the Congo Country. While he was mobilizing for human dignity of African Americans here, he also t reminded people, say, you know what? We gotta remember what's happening in the Congo. So I mean, there are many names. I can't keep throwing names of those uh, who lifted up, like you know, Mark Twain used his talent as a writer to write a Leopold soliloquy. Um, all of us eat Cadbury chocolate. We don't know that the CEO of Cadbury, Mr. Cadbury, I forgot his first name, was a member of the Congo Reform Association. We have Edie Morel and others in Europe who mobilized to put pressure on European nations, specifically the UK. You know, Edie Morel's report, Red Rubber, is the single report that made the UK investigate on uh, what King Lopo was doing in the Congo. But that was like a lot of work. And they achieved one specific goal after a few, uh, few years, which was that Congo was taken away from King Leopold, but it was not given back to the Congolese, but they did something. So that's the way I see the work that we do now, uh, that even if it's a small group, over time, it's going to be great. And when I was at ANT in Greensboro, North Carolina, I remember going to the Moral Mondays that Reverend Barber did. Um, usually we were 20 people when we went in front of the state uh, building. And I think last year, I was surprised. I think I was outside of the, the US. And he had thousands of people on Moral Mondays. I said, I remember in 2008, <laughs> what was around, right? But it, it's going to take some time. But the question is, the, the plea that I made was, uh, people willing to dream for a free and liberated Congo and know that it's going to be a serious and long struggle. While we are talking, Sasha, just let us know that the fight is not over. Because now everyone wants to have the new Tesla car. Or the Tesla battery, that's uh, the home battery that you put there. So Home Depot has it, right? So when you see that, and I'm Congolese, I'm saying, oh my God, it's, it's never ending. But I know they can change because I also know another country that's resource rich, but they don't have this story. Norway. 
So when I hear the story that you know, we are too rich, we have these minerals, everything that we have, this I'm asking myself, why are women being raped and killed like they're doing in the Congo in Norway? What is happening in Norway that they can benefit from their resources? They've built strong institutions that's able to manage the situation in the country and have a benefit for the citizens. Are they saying that the brain of a Congolese is different than the brain of the European in Norway? Or we are, I am very clear that the issue, even though it's presented as an issue of mineral resources, it's not about the mineral resources only. It's beyond that. It's a greed. It's racism. It's like you do not want the people in the heart of Africa to just enjoy their life. As myself being born there, when I was born and growing up in Congo, I wanted to become a lawyer. I did not want to go to a mine and dig diamond. So what's the point that the people in that area cannot take control of the land? Because they are saying that they cannot control this mineral because it needs to be in your Tesla car, and we need to make profit off of the minerals. So if we understand that, then we educate people around this issue, and we let them know if it's liberated, what is the potential of the country. Um, on the Rwanda issue, I think it's been touched on. Um, but Congo's issue is a multi-pronged. Uh, it is, has multiple layers to look at it. So the way I present Congo's challenges is through five layers. And I say that Congo has five forces against it. And those five forces, the first force, so think about Congo in the middle, then you have the first force is the Congolese elite. So you have our government and the elite who are oppressing the people. The second one will be neighboring country, Rwanda and Uganda, and you can name others. The third one would be multinational corporations who are looting the resources, so you have them there. Then the fourth one will be the multilateral institutions, like the World Bank and the uh, IMF, who have actually written the mining laws of the Congo and the forestry laws of the Congo and regulate even how we operate. And I could even add another layer, saying the humanitarian industry, uh, where, right? Exactly. So when you see these forces and you look at the Congolese in the middle, they are trying to fight to come out, out of the oppression. So it's not like when you were fighting to end apartheid, you knew there is one force, we're going to end apartheid. But for Congolese, they have to try to stop every single force. So that's why international solidarity is paramount, because they cannot just say, I'm going to stop Kabila and think that everything is fine. Right? So it's how do they have us outside partner? to deal with that. Uh, the evangelists I do not have much information on that as well, unfortunately. Um, and the mobilization, I think, is uh, the, I don't know if it's the platform to discuss how young Congolese are mobilizing, but I will share uh, that the youth of 1958, without the roads, without the communication network, without what we take for granted now, were able to gain independence, that the youth of today have all the resources and all the methods for mobilizing. And you should also look at the arrest, the killing of the youth, as a sign that they are effective. Why aren't they arresting politicians like they arrest youth in Congo? Why are they torturing the politicians like they do the youth in Congo? Because they're afraid of the Congolese youth. It's a force that cannot be corrupted easily. It's a 
like a mass that want to see change because they say to us that 96% of Congolese can, uh, are unemployed. So their future depends on their fight. So it's not about even being afraid of death. It's saying, they are saying that we are already dead. We have to fight for living. And the uh, last point about the dignity of the Africans. Um, it's, I think it's connected to the response I also said to Lisa. Uh, for Congolese to be free, I don't think they'll be able to do it alone. To regain the respect around the world is actually, I guess it's a spiritual journey of human beings to know where they come from. If you know that we all come from the African continent, no matter our color and race, and you see what's happening in the Congo and you're not doing something about it, you should ask yourself if you're a human being, right? So it's like a spiritual journey of people saying that human dignity beyond what we see on the African continent is everyone's responsibility to see that the Congo change. If people don't see it that way, it's another. But then specifically for Africans, and that's why I'm spending uh, now my time in Africa a lot, is I actually realized that many Africans don't know what's happening in the Congo. Um, I was in uh, Kokomlele. I can't speak on behalf of everyone in New York because I used to live in New York as well, all uh, right? So, uh, but when I was in Kokomleble in uh, Accra, uh, there was a young man who came to the mic, uh, went to the Freedom Center that's run by the Socialist Forum of Ghana. Every Wednesday they have what they call Wednesday Night Palaver. Where anyone comes, you talk about a political topic. And a young Ghanaian, probably he's in his 20s, um, and we're talking about issues about Africa's prosperity. And he came to the mic and he says, why don't we copy what Paul Kagame is doing around? Look at what he's doing. You know, he, the Kigali is very clean, uh, the economic mark. Now, this is a young Ghanaian in West Africa. We're speaking about Kagame. And I actually had to go to the mic, unfortunately, after he spoke. And I said that if we have to... Um, say that the greatest leaders in Africa have to be quoted by how clean a street is, we're in trouble. Because we could make that argument around certain streets in Manhattan. And then you ask if certain street in Manhattan is clean, does it mean that everything in the Bronx and in, uh, uh, in Harlem is okay? While everyone in New York City pays taxes. Right? So, and I was just sharing that with him to say, this is not how we should actually look at our leaders. We should look at our leaders, how it changes uh, the, the society, how it changes the way people live. Are people afraid to speak for themselves? Uh, can people think for themselves? Can women leaders who decide to run for political office have space to, to do that? So when we start looking at those things, they can change. So it's paramount to your point to Congolese and Africans to say that we will take on the issue of the Congo juice as we took on the issue of apartheid. We say we're going to end apartheid. People around the world mobilized to end it, and they did that. And in the case of the Congo, I see the Congo movement as important as the Free South Africa movement was yesterday. And if, if we can look at it that way, I think we can achieve something while the Congolese fight inside to regain human dignity and control the affairs of the country. And, and, can I just add 
um, yeah, that you, both of you give up on that the AU is, you know, what can we get out of the AU? Um, to, get to your point, use your analogy. For instance, would we say the US Congress is serving the interests of the American people? Would we say that? Would we say the United Nations is serving the interests of its member states, right? And so on and so forth. But would you give up on them? Would you say we should abolish the US Congress? Would you say that it's a waste of time? Would you say same thing with the so I'm saying pressure must be brought, mobilized also, because guess what my brother, as you know, the same struggle is happening now in Ghana because the, the, because the base is going to be there. What is happening in the Congo? It's not peculiar to the Congo. It's replicated all over the continent. So all of you they are fighting in the continent for your, for your rights. This is happening in Rwanda, Burundi, in South Sudan, Somalia, right to us. It's happening in the Caribbean. So why don't you collectivize the struggle, share the struggle, and say, put pressure on the AU not to collectivize the struggle. That's my point. Well, I, just like you said, to the people in Manhattan, no, oh, well, the streets are clean. What happens to the people in Brooklyn and in Bronx and so on? But collectivize the struggle. That's where I'm going with it. In, right? Yes, international thing, but in, in the end, the people themselves have to free themselves. And the people of Africa, yes, we appreciate love, we appreciate the, the international solidarity, but like apartheid, it was the Africans there who liberated themselves with solidarity from the outside. So we need to collectivize the struggle. We need to put pressure on the AU. Okay, thank you. And Lisa, do you want to get names from Kambali so that you might uh, educate the populace? Yes, have you written on that? If there's no other questions, do you want to address the issues that sure, were raised? Sure. You want to start? Yeah. Uh, 
I do not know if China is helping or hindering. I'll share what I see on the African country, specifically in uh, Congo and also in Zambia. Um, China is also now involved militarily on the continent. So there is a challenge, uh, I don't know if it's a battle, of control of the African continent, uh, where in the case of the Congo, <laughs> you have the Russians, you have the Chinese, you have the French intelligence, um, and the U.S. is putting pressure around the elections. For the Chinese, they've had contracts to build infrastructure. There are so many problems with that issue. Uh, initially, um, in, I believe it was around 2008, the first time I encountered, and I was talking to someone who was, was part of a former politician who's passed away now, Katumba um, Mwanke. Uh, and they were sharing with me how they had this great deal that you know, they actually got. And the deal was for every Chinese, there will be three Congolese working, right? Uh, that you know, will get these hospitals and clinics. So the antics of what the prosperity of the Chinese would have brought from 2006 up until the start of changing the contract has not been seen in the country probably. So the question would be, one, why isn't the project producing something that people will see while they see the Chinese presence there in the local market causing tension and also controlling some of the mine sites where there is not oversight of actually what's being extracted there. Um, I think China's presence in Zambia is, uh, I don't know if you all have heard of PLO Lumumba. Yeah, uh, PLO Lumumba being kicked out for being uh, critical uh, of China. So you s at least on the, on the Zambian front, uh, China has enough power to put pressure on the Zambian government to take any African scholar critical of them. Um, as a young African, just being also mindful of my, no, one, my opinion on what Congolese need um, is the challenge we're facing. We are having bureaucrats negotiating contracts where they're not technocrats and they don't have the expertise on thinking about if I am going to make a deal with China, how does that benefit the people and making sure that it's actually implemented? The Chinese build railroads in the United States. Right? So how did they build the railroads in the United States? Um, they have been part of the world where they've done projects that worked, but on, in the case of the continent, it's really feeling that they're recognizing the continent while the leaders are not actually worrying about the, the implementation of what they agree on signing. Um, on your question of uh, the forces, so when I'm speaking about the local elite, I'm looking at the governments, I'm looking at the business network, uh, there is, I don't know if you know, there is a very serious mafia network in Congo. Uh, from the Lebanese network, there have even been reports uh, that money laundering is happening uh, for Hezbollah in DRC. Uh, they have been reported many times even to the State Department. Um, they are also even in the fishing industry. A friend of mine wanted to start a fishing business, and up until today, he still does not have a license, right? And he, I mean, he did get funding, he went on the ground, but he found out some of the Bangladeshi business folks in Kinshasa were able to have, yes, whatever the ministry was, for him not to get the license. Because you know we eat purely in Kinshasa, right? But we have Lake Tanganyika, which is uh, the, a lake that has, I think, the most fish in the world. We have the Congo River, 
and how come Congolese are not able to develop the fishing industry? But I know one person who's been, who has been trained for years, and he stopped. So you have the business cartels that control import and export, that control the purchase of military equipment, uh, that control different aspects. So all these network from government to business elite and others um, do not also want Kabila to leave. Because if he leaves, they will lose what they have. But the Congolese are caught in that trap as well. So when I speak about locally, it's that sphere. Uh, when I speak about the humanitarian <coughs> industry, and the humanitarian, uh, humanitarian industry in the Congo has played a negative role in one, the narrative of what is happening in the Congo. Um, the oversimplification of the issue has made it harder for Congolese to actually be able to say what's happening in the Congo. I remember very vividly in 2006, as in Washington, D.C., saying that Rwanda and Uganda is evading the Congo, and people are calling us radical. These people are so radical. They, they name names. They're not afraid to say that Cabot Corporation out of Boston, Massachusetts, the former CEO, was the Secretary of Energy of George Bush. I said, why are you naming names? That's not what you do in the United States, right? But at the time, uh, which to me I found fascinating, is that people will say there are millions of people dying in the Congo, there are hundreds of thousands of women raped, and you ask, who is doing it? They were afraid to actually say. Of course, you can talk about the Congolese military and others, but the forces to transform the society, which that war, right, has been seen in Uganda. If you go to the Acholi region and see what happened there, you see it's the same type of killing that took place. You go to South Sudan, the same type of killing happened. You go to Rwanda, the same type of killing. So you look at the region, this war on women has been happening in the region for the purpose of subjugating the people to know, uh, to do nothing. So that's one. Then the second is, if you look at the 990 or some of these organizations that you call humanitarian companies, uh, uh, um, do you know what 990 is, actually? So any organization here in the United States registered as a nonprofit, 501c3, has to publish the source of funding. So it's public. So any one of you can pull up of any organization. I invite you to look at our 990. And after you do, please donate to Friends of the Congo. Um, but when you look at, right, first the amount of money they get, and millions of dollars or some of them, and then you start looking at their corporate donors, you will find some of the same electronic companies funding them. You will find some of the mining corporation funding them. You will actually find out that some of the mining corporations in the Congo flying them around the country. So then the question would become, if you are advocating for the Congo and some of the same corporation exploiting the Congolese people, you're getting money from them, who are you working on behalf of? Right? So, and there are so many uh, different companies there. So that's why I said they play one, a negative role in uh, diluting the information, and two, the culprit of the conflict sometimes fund uh, these same uh, humanitarian organizations. Um, well, I also invite you to look at our 990. We're part of something called the New Venture Fund. It's a, it's a, a sort of a conglomerate of NGOs, but we, we do not take any money from any of those corporations. Um, uh, just to address a couple of the questions. Uh, so the China question is, is pretty interesting and relevant. Um, to be totally honest with you, like there are 
uh, problems and and lacks of lack of transparency in a lot of the China uh, deals that have happened in Congo. And there's this multi-billion-dollar big deal that Kambali referred to. Um, but to be honest, like I don't see them as uh, very different or far worse than uh, actors from elsewhere, like U.S. or European. Or I mean, there's been so. The, the the exploitation uh, that's been happening in Congo is you, you can't blame like one company or one country or anything like that. I mean, if you go around Congo, the few roads that they do have mo- are largely built by the Chinese, actually. So, you know, you, you see actually some concrete benefit. Now, um, uh, the roads are sometimes not very good or uh, a lot of times the money has gone missing. So, you know, some of the things that they budgeted for are not uh, on the ground or that kind of thing. But um, there's so many, as I mentioned, uh, other investigations and, and other um, uh, cases of, of actual corruption that have been um, prosecuted, et cetera, from others. So um, nevertheless, uh, there is a lot of lack of transparency in those China deals. And um, uh, the, the, the next horizon of, of huge potential corruption um, is uh, uh, a big dam, which potentially is going to be the largest dam in Africa, um, called Inga, Inga 3 Dam, uh, hydroelectric dam. And so the, the Congolese government is trying to move this project ahead. Uh, and just two weeks ago, they signed uh, a deal with um, a Chinese company and a, and a Spanish company that they should work together uh, to, as, to, to bid on, on the dam. They're, they're now going to be the only bidders. Um, and this is going to be a multi-billion dollar deal. Now, is that going to actually translate to benefits for the population? Uh, I don't know. But it, under this current government, I, it's hard to imagine that no money would get siphoned off. So um, I, I think that's something we are going to have to look at. Um, secondly, I would say that uh, interestingly, uh, a lot of people say that, oh, well, China's a black hole. You know, these companies are very corrupt. They'll just pay off the leaders and sort of build some white elephant project or whatever. But actually what we found is that a lot of the minerals may be extracted by Chinese companies, but in fact, they're selling their minerals to us. So in fact, we have a lot of leverage on them, and that's something we've had a lot of success with. So um, one thing that we helped pass was um, a part of the Dodd-Frank um, uh, Wall Street reform bill, which deals with uh, minerals. And so um, uh, as part of the implementation of that, companies have set up auditing systems for um, companies that refine minerals around the world. Um, and there's been some 250 companies or something that refine minerals around the world that, are, that have been a part of that implementation. Well, a large percentage of them are in China, and they have gone through the audits. It's very interesting because they still want to sell to us. So actually, there's a way to influence those Chinese companies, too, if we can um, enact better transparency measures on our companies. Uh, eventually, maybe they'll, those minerals will be consumed in China, and then we'll have no inf- influence. But actually, interestingly, things are changing in China too, right? I'm sure you're aware that there's this big crackdown against corruption in China, which is very interesting, like also crackdown against environmental pollution, which is also very interesting. Um, so uh, I don't think that we should see them as a, as a, um, uh, a monolithic bad actor that there are ways to I know very little I've never been to China myself but I've met some Chinese activists who you know tell us about some of the changes that are happening there and ways to um, try to, to leverage those changes for 
um, for the benefit. They are, they've also signed on to the EITI that I mentioned. So um, I think Russia is the actor to, to look at a little bit more closely. The Congolese government has uh, signed some agreements with Russia recently, and Russia, of course, has been active in the Central African Republic in a very negative way um, recently with mercenaries, etc., going after diamond mines and, and oil concessions. So um, Russia, of course, has a long history in Africa through the Cold War, etc., but um, I think that's an actor to, to, to look at um, going forward as well. Um, and just the last thing I wanted to say was to address your question, um, uh, not just about the humanitarian sector, but the aid sector in general. I think that's an area where we need a lot of reform um, and, and really um, put some stronger accountability measures on the aid so that um, it's not going to um, uh, so-called capacity build the government, but actually, you know, the government's just stealing the money. Um, uh, and also making sure that uh, that, that we're putting uh, uh, sort of monitors and, and, and accountability um, uh, people, people working on accountability in place um, to really help um, uh, that aspect of things. So supporting military justice, supporting um, uh, uh, prosecutors, supporting um, even institutions of public financial management, um, like the Human Rights Office that you mentioned, that you know basically gets zero funding. So um, uh, there's a lot to be done there. So, mm -hmm. but can we end on a positive note in a way? Even with the electronic machines, is there any way that election? Could come off the way the Congolese people wanted to. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about working on Congo is that it's very unpredictable. <laughs> oh, okay. So, you know, as Kambale mentioned in 2015, uh, everyone stood up and and uh, uh, voted with their feet, and and in some cases their lives uh, against these proposed um, uh, changes that the government was trying to make. So, um, also, I think there's a great window of opportunity for the U.S. and others to. Um, to act, the African Union could do something as well. So, yeah, I think there is a there is a chance that this could go um, well. And and like we saw, the opposition, you know, was a two to one favorite to win. So, um, even if they're not the best, they're better than Kabila probably. So. Yes, 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 definitely. And uh, uh, want to thank you enormously. And what individually we can do, and of course, what can the New York City Board do? Uh, I mean, you know, besides looking at our 990 and giving some donations. Uh, <laughs> money, money, money. I'm just kidding. So, um, no, 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 you we, we, we do actually have a take action um, on our website, enoughproject.org, which is in furtherance of this legislation that I mentioned. So to get the Senate to introduce their version, I think that they really need to hear from from people. Um, so that's that's something I'm sure you have access to. Come on. What about Senate three uh, three eighty six? Does that have any weight? Oh, so that was a resolution, oh, which okay. is helpful. Um, but we really need something that's that's uh, will force the administration to take action, okay. not just anyway. sort of we like we recommend. Right. We see who we want you to. Okay. Yeah. Thank you both enormously for your input, and thank you all for coming. And. This subject will not be dropped. We will continue it and hopefully do something about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, Great. no, no, no. Thank you. And December 24th, we can all celebrate. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll probably celebrate regardless. <laughs>
No, but is it there... is the holidays. Pardon? 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 P